Blog Talk Radio. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Yeah, so don't you rap? You know you know what I'm gonna do. Fuck me. 
My name is Haiki Kamaka Mishoki. And of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. <clears throat> but I got to tell you, Brother Africa, you know, the more I read about the uh, economic affairs of the day, I realize the level of deception they use in terms of economic analysis. And it's quite interesting. Uh, one of the things is that when you think back, back into the 80s, there was a campaign to increase awareness of economics. Uh, it was called the equal, equal quotient, uh, in which they wanted Americans to be better acquainted with the idea of economics. Well, that campaign, interestingly enough, only lasted for three months. Now, of course, the question arises, why only three months? Since learning that economics is a very good thing for American citizens. Well, apparently somebody realized that if the American people uh, on a mass level understood economics, it means that their ability to manipulate and deceive the people, their ability to profit, to prosper at the expense of all others, would be in, be in, be in, in doubt. So therefore, there was someone made a call that we were in a campaign. In less than three months, as I said, that campaign was ended. But in any event, Brother Africa, in terms of keeping with that theme, in terms of capitalism and deception, I want you to check this out. Now, the games leaders, leaders employ to deceive people on the state of the economy entails a great deal of self-deception and cunning. Recently, a representative of Refinitiv, a corporate watchdog, claimed Standard & Poor 500 companies, 500 of the largest companies trading on New York's U.S. stock exchanges, will see profits averaged by 11% in 2022. His dubious claims were followed by declaration economic growth is expected to reach an annualized growth rate of near 4% in 2022. <clears throat> What he conveniently omitted was annualized growth is not based on real economic growth, but speculative or guesswork predicated on economic growth, presumably established in the previous quarter and over year. For example, if I have a business and that grows one quarter <clears throat> and it grows in a, in a quarter, it grows by 1%. I multiply that by four since there are four quarters in a year. By multiplying that one times four, it gives me a projected economic growth rate of 4% for the year which is not even close to reality. These types of distortions are common in economic analysis, and the only purpose they serve, institutional economic theft, and the corresponding levels of poverty created. Why is the, this economic analysis disingenuous, or why this kind of optimism of the U.S. economy is ill-placed Ill can be demonstrated by taking a closer look into the, to the economy and the role financial institutions play in propping up the interest of wealth. First, Achieving a profit margin of 11% for non-financial institutions in times of economic boom is considered good. What about in times of economic recession? Now, before you contribute the recession or, <clears throat> or economic decline to the pandemic, the current recession preceded the pandemic. In 2019, the level of corporate debt in the U.S. exceeded $9 trillion. By 2020, the level of corporate debt had already exceeded $10 trillion. Currently, corporate debt stands at about $10.5 trillion. The level of corporate debt is key to understanding fluctuations that accompany business cycles. This fluctuation of the business cycle is due to, in a small part, corporate bond market. The corporate bond market is where corporations go to secure loans. Securing loans from banks is possible, but loans secured from the Federal Reserve offer better interest rates, and in the case of defaults, unlike loans from the banks, defaults are treated differently. Poorly performing loans in corporate America are simply repackaged. Once considered investment-grade bonds or good investments, default on government bonds simply authorizes corporations to sell bonds as junk bonds. Assigned junk status by rating agents at Standard, Standard & Poor, Moody's, or Finch, 
Corporations issue junk bonds with very high interest rates to attract investors. Currently, there are over 50 major corporations issuing junk bonds called to the U.S. government. When I say the U.S. government, I'm talking about the U.S. taxpayers, $200 billion a year. If we were to incorporate the more than 600 zombie companies, companies are barely basically insolvent, finding it difficult to repay their interest, interest on their loans, the debt incurred by U.S. taxpayers are even more substantial. As of 2022, non-financial corporate debt exceeded $17.7 trillion unofficially. The level of debt from the previous year increased from 5.5% to over 9.1% in 2020. The only solution for indebted corporations was acquiring more loans or debt from the Federal Reserve. This additional debt from the U.S. bond purchases resulted in an additional $7.5 trillion, or 30% or 30% of debt to the U.S. economy, impacting both employment and inflation. Hardships imposed on government revenues does compel a response from government. Rather than end the free money to corporations, deposits being continued. Government would merely extend the maturation rate on its loan from 17.1 years to 17.6 years by 2020. Fully understanding these loans would drag the economy down, in addition to not begin being, being repaid by, by, by corporations. Current discussions about the reduction of the $8.5 trillion bond market or money allocated for investment and employment from the Federal Reserve will impose additional hardships on the economy. In addition, reducing $120 billion of loans guaranteed monthly since the pandemic to just $20 billion a month will surely, will surely ensure the economy contracts with devastating impact to both city and states. The notion non-financial businesses can, can sustain profit rates on average of 11% is not only delusional, but unsustainable given the constraints of the capitalist model. Secondly, Profitability is based upon consumers' ability to pay. Currently, 60% of GDP is consumer spending. Two economic variables impact consumers' ability to spend. Those variables are inflation and the consumer price index. With regard to inflation, inflation is officially listed as 7%, although many economists believe it is to be 15%. According to the Department of Labor, this represents the fastest inflation rate in over 40 years. Attempts to arrest inflation historically have failed, but Esther George of the Kansas City Federal Reserve postulated reduction of bond purchases from the Department of Treasury from $25 billion a month to $10 billion a month will reduce inflation. Other Federal Reserve representatives asserted three interest rate increases in 2022 should be sufficient. Ironically, neither position advocated ending inflation. Many economists tell to take the position inflation is necessary to coerce consumers because without rising prices threatening to increase more, no one would buy. The irony is justifying inflation becomes problematic when viewed in the context of rising price levels across the economy. Price increases brought on by legitimate scarcity does exist. However, in the case of the Consumer Price Index, the manipulation employed to understate inflation encourages businesses, the business decisions to, to raise prices even when not justified or when those increases are damaging to the overall economy. More insidious is the propensity for government to engage in statistical manipulation of the Consumer Price Index as the profit. In this context, inflation is viewed as an invisible tax. While government benefits from further transfer of wealth from the poorest sector of society to itself, what about the corresponding decrease in consumption? Does this strategy not undermine the very purpose of consumption, namely to improve the economy? If lessening of consumption negatively affects employment opportunities, one has to question the motives behind the capitalist economic model. Just as importantly, in analyzing the consumer price index during 10 
is not necessarily to assess the level of consumerism in society. Conspicuously absent in the consumer price index measurement is the cost of food, energy, and housing. There's no question, including these variables, which dramatically increase the consumer price index percentages, making the economy look good. But at the same time, render it incapable of reconciling an official unemployment rate of 4% in a functioning economy and a 4% poverty rate that is slated to, to increase significantly when 35 million families, 70 to 100 million people, lose their ch- child tax credit Congress approved to assist poor working people in the U.S. as a result of the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic. Now, concealing this level of desperation in U.S. society is one thing, but pretending these numbers do not affect the U.S. economy is another. So clearly, it's very important we understand the economic reality of the situation. And the more we understand the economic reality of the situation, Brother Africa, the more we realize the situation, how perilous our situation is in this, in, in this society. I just wish, and this is very, very idealistic, but I certainly wish people across the board, irrespective of their status or irrespective of the color of their skin or irrespective of their ethnicity, it would be great if people understood that fundamentally we all in this together, but the reality is that just doesn't work that way. But one thing is important as a marginalized community in the African community is very important, particularly so, uh, for us to understand how economics works. And so when we listen to these, these analysis in terms of economics, be in a position to understand the fallacy from what's real. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. We next we'll go to Brother Moses and we're gonna bring him in and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I believe women hold up half the sky. That's why I'm for pro-ERA, yes, Equal Rights Amendment. And uh, the struggle continues in terms of the contradictions among the people. There must be a correct handling of the contradictions among the people, as Chairman Mao said. And so we must use our empathy uh, and our altruism to advocate for the working class and uh, against the interests of the ruling class, the 1%, who, who diametrically and, and, uh, and antagonistically oppose the interests of the working class. And so I'll leave it right there. Thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses, and to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move, and right now we're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community, and we'd like to hear from you as well by calling in at 323-679-0841. We'll be right back, and we're going to remind you, like Brother Bob Marley said, we don't want you to be a Buffalo soldier. Buffalo Soldier, dressed like a rock star. It was a 
in 19, the beginning in 1915 on this particular day, as well as the PA, PAIGC landing um, struggle against the Portuguese imperialism. It was in 1963 on this day, and Paul Robeson, actor, activist, athlete, lawyer, he made a transition on this day in the year 1976. So those were just some African history facts that took place on this particular day that you need to be aware of. And right now, again, we're going to make our transition right now to the segment, What's Going On In Your World In The Community, and we invite you to call in as well and share with us what's going on in your world in the community. So we're going to start off with our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We're going back to Brother High Key. We're going to bring him in, and we're going to ask Brother High Key talk to us. What's going on in your world in the community, Brother High Key? You know, you know, bro, you, you know Brother Africa, at, at some point, uh, disregard uh, for life in society has to be addressed by the overwhelming numbers of people in society. Uh, clearly, we have a system that's out of, out of control, and uh, its lack of regard for human life is self-evident. But it seems to me that, you know, uh, to some extent, uh, we give carte blanche authority uh, to this system in terms of carrying out its ruthlessness and its humanity, uh, you know, without actually, actually thinking about it. So it seems to me on a conscious level, we have to begin to think about the kind of power we, we give to the system in terms of its ability to carry out this ruthlessness, this kind of inhumanity that permeates the society. Uh, recently, there was a situation uh, of a young sister, uh, Tamisha Chappelle. She's a 23-year-old African sister, and she was incarcerated in Jackson County, Indiana. What was interesting about this particular, this particular uh, uh, case was that uh, she died while she was in custody. Now, dying in custody is not unusual in America. You have many, many people who die in custody, and there was no, no, no accountability whatsoever from, a, from authorities in terms of addressing these, these systematic wrongs. So clearly, the, the, so clearly this question in terms of the sanctity of life is not a real concern, particularly when we start talking about these, these dungeons, these prisons, these places that they incarcerate people, those people which they have no use for in society. So clearly, Brother Africa, this is problematic. But in her particular case, you know, um, it was alleged that, you know, uh, over 16 hours constantly, you know, advocated for medical care, medical treatment. It was alleged by her by other inmates that one of the jailers said to her, quote, I don't know what you want me to do unless you're coughing up something crazy. Now, what is interesting about that, um, she called for help according to the, to the other inmates. In the in context of five hours, she called four times, about 45, every 45 minutes she called in terms of medical care. Now, what is interesting in terms of just from a legal perspective, one of the things we have to understand in terms of these dungeons or these prisons, the ability to get away with ruthlessly killing off people, the reason they, they can do that is because it is because the, the legitimacy involved in terms of that whole process. Keep in mind that these, these jailers, or their staff, they're not considered doctors. Now, here's the thing. Unless they can observe, you know, uh, medical distress concretely, in this, let's say, for example, bleeding, uh, non-moving, uh, those kinds of things, unless those things are quantifiable, then they can get off legally because they're not doctors. They're not in a position to make, make those assessments in terms of whether or not a person is actually in medical distress. 
And, you know, it seems to me, but when you stop and think about it, you know, the mere fact that, you know, you know, the, over 16-hour period that she demanded medical care and given the sound of her voice, according to other inmates, is very, very apparent that there was something wrong in terms of her medically. Now, the mere fact that, you know, at a minimum, when you start thinking about that kind of, that kind of medical distress and someone calling you 16, for, for 16 hours to seek care, at a minimum, it seems to me that her mental, st- mental status should have been assessed by some professional. It seems to me at a very minimum. So in that context, it seems to me that the refusal even to assess her mental status to me seems problematic and seems to me a dereliction of duty in terms of those staffers. But again, the prosecutor in this particular case, Jeffrey Chalfant, refused to make criminal charges against any jail employee. Now, his, his decision is not to file charges against, uh, against uh, the officials there in, in Indiana is a direct contrast to the prosecutors in the Jeffrey Epstein case who filed charges against two jail employees for fraud and dereliction of duty. Now, in all fairness, the, 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 the only difference between the Epstein case and, and Tanisha Chappelle's case, the Epstein was on suicide watch. So by being on suicide watch, the, 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 the institution is, is the only known institution to provide for their individual safety because they're supposed to watch them every 30, at least every 30 minutes. And the case of uh, Tanisha Chappelle, if they had taken some consideration in terms of her mental status, given the fact that she continually calling about medical care, medical care, medical care, if they would be concerned about her mental status, if they would have provided, you know, her access to at least a, a mental health counselor in terms of at least discussing her medical concerns, the probability is that she would be live today. But because she wasn't on a suicide watch, uh, there was no real culpability as far as the state was concerned, and she was allowed to just just conveniently die. I, I, and um, don't get me wrong when I say conveniently, but I'm saying in terms of uh, lack of com- lack of compassion on the part of the jailers in terms of addressing her immediate needs. Uh, so it seems to me I certainly hope well, you know civilly, the, if not criminally, uh, the family keeps up the fight in terms of pursuing justice for Tanisha Ch- Chapel. Because no, because going to prison or going to this institution shouldn't be a death sentence. But, I'm, but my biggest concern, Brother Africa, is that uh, given the kind of uh, overall uh, lack of compassion when it comes to human life, or lack of concern when it comes to human life, that I'm afraid that this, 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 this question of, of people dying in these institutions is not going to decrease. On the, on the, con- on the contrary, it's going to actually increase. So anyway, I thought this, this case was particularly interesting in, in the fact that it's, since it's so pervasive, that it seems to me people better understand that if they can do that to people who are, uh, who are in the most vulnerable state in terms of being incarcerated, then imagine people out here who are homeless or people who are impoverished, uh, people who uh, don't have any place anywhere to go. What about them in terms of you know, their immediate needs and the relationship between their needs and ultimate death? So at some point, people in the society have to become more humane. We have to understand that in order to get this country to a position of being more humane, we have to fight for it. It's not going to be given to you. It's something you have to fight for. But first and foremost, we have to be conscientious that, in fact, this kind of pervasive uh, lack of concern for life is a problem. Thank you, Brother Haki. You next going to bring in Brother Moses and Axel. What's going on in your world and community, Brother Moses? Well, it's been an interesting week. Um, obviously, the the um, 
the voting rights bills have been um, almost just um, totally abandoned at this point by the two Democrats and the 50, 50 Republicans in the Senate. And so there's no progress on that front. Um, second, then also there's been a right to life meeting demonstrations. A lot of people on the on, on the mall and um, complaining that they're they don't want people to have abortions and uh, that they're so pro life that um, that that they um, they just. Uh, looking out for the interests of the baby and um I don't know after the baby is born it seems it seems like there's no no pro life um um program to um to ensure the health welfare and um education of the children. And also there was a anti mandate uh, for vaccine rally on the mall, uh, people complaining that they they don't want the vaccine and they shouldn't be forced to take the vaccine and that that they have rights and um and so they were standing up for their rights as the, all this is um more of the right wing uh, movement. Um, it's been an interesting week. Um, the Soviet Union is, I'm mean, not Soviet Union, the Russia and um, the, um, was the Secretary of State, I guess it was, uh, had been negotiating over um, the the uh, possible um, movement of Russian troops into Ukraine, and so that's a concern. Uh, and the virus, of course, is still rampant. Um, I myself succumbed to the uh, positive um, uh, COVID, and I've been on the quarantine since last Sunday. And uh, but fortunately, I had the shots and the booster, and uh, so I'm asymptomatic. I'm I just the, other than the test to show that I had it, I, I haven't had any real problems. And uh, but um, this has been an interesting week. I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, uh, panelists, I'm going to add to the segment this particular documentary where they talk about this whole behavior of the Central Intelligence Agency and how they contrive fake news. Because as you just mentioned, Brother Moses, they talk about this issue between Russia and Ukraine and the news and the narrative is being played out. Sometimes you don't see the trick the first time, you never see it the second time. Let's listen to this piece here, and we'll come back, and let's put this in to some kind of perspective in today's world as we constantly are being provided with Western propaganda. Listen, and we'll come back and respond to it. We all know that you can't believe everything you read, but at the same time, most journalists do try their level best to get the facts straight. It requires checking, and wherever possible, a first-hand account of what's happening. 
But an eyewitness account is not always possible, particularly in nasty wars on the other side of the world. And so reporters sometimes have to rely on other people's accounts. The story then becomes as good as its source, and sources sometimes lie. The U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, deals in information and misinformation. Tonight we see how the CIA has been able to plant news reports that aren't just inaccurate, but totally fabricated. This is Angola, a former Portuguese colony in southwest Africa that's been at war since the mid-70s. Its left-wing government, supported by Cuban soldiers, fights a continual battle against guerrillas backed by South Africa. Ten years ago, the Soviets helped send guns and troops here, and the United States responded with support for the guerrillas. According to newspapers at the time, that's how the Angolan War started. But did it? John Stockwell, wearing the cross, worked for the CIA for 12 years. As a colonel, his last assignment was to run the U.S. campaign in Angola. The basic theme was to make it look like a, a Russian-Cuban aggression in Angola. And so any kind of story that you could write and get into the media anywhere that, that pushed that line, you did. Uh, one third of my staff in this task force was covert action was propagandists whose professional career jobs was making up stories and finding ways to get them into the press. In 1975, the resource-rich African country was being fought over by three factions. Agostino Neto led the left-wing MPLA, which eventually became the government. Jonas Savimbi, an anti-Marxist, led UNITA, which was openly supported by South Africa. And another anti-communist force was led by Holden Roberto, who had been paid by the CIA for 14 years and was now to receive major U.S. support. The CIA had just closed down three long-term paramilitary operations in Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. They had over a thousand paramilitary case officers come flocking back to Washington. They didn't have desks for everybody, much less jobs, and morale was rock bottom low. They wanted a covert action. They wanted a paramilitary encounter. The rationale uh, was that uh, uh, the Soviet Union was trying to take advantage of the United States' weakness right after the, the Vietnam War, that Angola was getting its independence and they were trying to snap it up, and that Henry Kissinger decided that we could not be weak and we wouldn't let them do it. Our own files disproved that. We moved into Angola first and the Russians were responding to us. But before the CIA could move, the U.S. National Security Council had to be sold and Stockwell helped with the briefing. The first briefings on Angola literally went, gentlemen, this is a map of Africa. Here is Angola. And then they went on with a chart to explain there are three liberation movements in Angola. One of them is headed by Holden Roberto. He's the good guy. We've worked with him for years, and they use literally good guy. Then the, the MPLA is headed by this drunken, psychotic Marxist poet Augustino Neto, he's the bad guy. And they used exactly the good, so to make sure that people understood. <laughs> Once the National Security Council had given its blessing, Stockwell and the CIA cranked up their propaganda machine. And newspapers around the world became unwitting accomplices in the campaign. From the CIA's headquarters, Stockwell sent his propagandists to Britain, Portugal, 
Zambia, and Zaire. Far from the battlefield in Angola, they wrote news releases for the two Western-backed factions, and these were fed into the ticker tapes of the Western media. Stockwell's CIA men also wined and dined Western journalists and gave them personal briefings. His man in Zambia was particularly enthusiastic. He ran a story that the city of Malangi had been captured by the UNITA forces, and in doing so, it captured 20 Russian advisors. And uh, they thought this would show that Russians were running the thing in Angola. There weren't Russian advisors. It wasn't a factor, and we knew that. But the story did well. The Toronto Star, like many newspapers, picked it up from Reuters news agency. It was also carried in the Montreal Gazette and in the Vancouver Sun. I, I remember reporting that very clearly. Fred Berglund was the Reuters reporter who filed the story from Zambia. Um, years later, I discovered that um, a little CIA um, misinformation expert had sat in the um, U.S. Embassy in Lusaka and had composed that communique, and it bore absolutely no relationship at all to truth. You've got to remember, at that stage, during a war, um, you're working under incredible pressure. I, I worked for four months without a day off for 16 hours a day. And all that was wanted was a flow of information. I mean, I, I'd done the same in the Middle East War. I, I was based in Damascus. I mean, in the first week of the war in Damascus, I, I wiped out the Israeli Air Force three times over with official statements. Reuters, with its headquarters here on London's Fleet Street, is one of the world's largest news agencies. Its international bureaus provide many newspapers with their only source of news from far parts of the globe. Well, I mean, with hindsight, um, some of the official statements from the side I was reporting, and I stress from the side I was reporting, but also from the side that people in, um, in Luanda with the MPLA were reporting, clearly most of those, rep those statements were completely false. The CIA man in Zambia soon came up with an even better story. He had some Cuban soldiers uh, raping some young Angolan girls. Uh, then there was a battle, and he had uh, that Cuban unit cut off and captured. And then he had the Cuban women, the victims, identifying their rapists. And then there was a trial, and they were convicted. And then he had them executed by a firing squad of the women who had supposedly been violated with photographs of, of, of young African women with uh, weapons shooting down these Cubans. Uh, there had never been a rape. There had never been the military action. The Cubans had never been captured. Uh, it was all fiction. Fiction, maybe. But it showed up on the front page of papers like the Toronto Star. The Toronto Globe and Mail also ran the story, and its headline attributed it to Angolan guerrillas. Many other Canadian newspapers in cities like Winnipeg, Montreal, and Halifax picked up the story. Basically, and to put it very crudely, you can um, publish any old crap you like, and it will get, um, get a newspaper room. But despite the best efforts of the CIA, the armies it supported didn't stand much of a chance once Cuban soldiers showed up. The force led by the man who'd been on the CIA payroll, Holden Roberto, was wiped out. And UNITA and the South Africans made a hasty retreat. Back in Washington, Congress didn't want another Vietnam and voted against spending any more money in Angola. 
More recently, the CIA has found work for its skilled writers in Central America, particularly in the campaign against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. First, the arms flow story. According to President Reagan, Nicaragua supplied guns to left-wing guerrillas in neighboring El Salvador. The Sandinista dictatorship of Nicaragua, with full Cuban-Soviet bloc support, not only persecutes its people, the church, and denies a free press, but arms and provides bases for communist terrorists attacking neighboring states. David McMichael was the CIA's senior analyst on Nicaragua. He was asked to write a report on the arms flow, but when he looked at the evidence, it didn't support Reagan's claims. The, the argument that we're dealing with here is, do these arms come through or from Nicaragua with the complicity of the Nicaraguan government, and the evidence does not sustain that. In 1981, the CIA asked McMichael for a report on the Nicaraguan press, opposition, and church. And uh, my, my conclusion was that, uh, you know, there was a significant space for these, uh, for these groups to operate, uh, but that they were in no, in no danger of suppression or disappearance. Compared to any other Central American country, Nicaragua has by far the liveliest uh, opposition press and media. Over two-thirds, for example, of the 40-odd radio stations in the country are, are still privately owned and generally speak their mind. When McMichael spoke his mind, the CIA didn't like it. He was fired. But after four years of fighting, now the Nicaraguan government has suspended many freedoms. In the world's newsrooms, the CIA efforts at disinformation continued to turn up. In 1982, reporters were shown photographs of what the CIA said were Soviet bases in Nicaragua, identifiable by their Soviet-styled obstacle courses, training areas, and guns. I used to laugh and say, look at that Soviet-style baseball diamond over there, you know. Um, you know, this is, this is almost foolish, really, you know, to talk about this. First of all, they're not Soviet military bases, that's, that's the whole point. The second is that a barracks is a barracks, you know, an obstacle course is an obstacle course. Soviet freighter Bakuriani pulled into the Nicaraguan port of Corinto today, carrying a mystery cargo which could lead to a showdown between the Sandinista... Just over a year ago, on the day President Reagan was re-elected, his administration came up with another Nicaragua story. This one had to do with Soviet MiG fighters, which Washington said had been shipped to Nicaragua in some mysterious crates detected by satellite surveillance. The result was more headlines. But as the story developed, doubts began to emerge. Ronald Reagan had a warning today for Nicaragua and for the Soviet Union. Reagan said the U.S. still cannot confirm reports that Nicaragua has received a shipment of MiG-21 jets. But he said if the reports turn out to be true, the U.S. would take a very dim view. The Nicaraguan government has denied that crates taken off a Soviet freighter today contain any warplanes. And it's accused Reagan of trying to whip up an invasion fever. By week's end, U.S. officials were saying there weren't any MiGs after all. It's the usual thing. The charge makes the headlines. The retraction makes the inside pages. Eight or ten days later, it's revealed, well, MiGs weren't on the way, but that's no longer a headline. So what one is left with is the overall impression from the screaming headlines of the week earlier that Nicaragua continues to represent this enormous danger to the security of the United States. 
this nation of three million impoverished souls, half of whom are under the age of 15, you know. Well, I would, I, I would say people are very silly if they believe everything that newspapers tell them. And I think pro probably anybody bu who buys a newspaper needs a course on how to read newspapers. Okay, you just listen to a feature piece that you can find on YouTube titled the CIA and Fake News. This was done in the 80s. So what we're going to do right now before we bring our panelists in to speak, we just have um, received two additional panelists and this for today's program. We'd like to welcome them in right quick and ask them to um, tell us What's going on now? We're in our community. We're now bringing Brother Anthony. Welcome, Brother Anthony, to Africa on the Move. What's going on in your world and the community? Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Uh, what's going on in uh, you know in my world is that uh, is that uh, things are conditions are intensifying in Mali and uh, Burkina Faso. Uh, there were demonstrations uh, uh, held in support of uh, Mali recently in Burkina Faso and Mali, uh, you know, uh, supporting, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the government in Mali and, uh, you know, and, and, dem and, and, and demonstrating against ECOWAS policy. Uh, towards uh, Mali in terms of uh, trying to isolate them, uh, you know, from any, uh, uh, you, you know, any trade. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, so things are, uh, uh, the situation is getting very intense at home in Africa. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We may have to bring in Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world in the community? Good evening, uh, Brother Africa, audience and fellow panelists. Uh, it's been an active week. Uh, we've heard uh, Mitch McConnell express his true feelings as well. As this weekend, there was a demonstration in opposition to the vaccine mandates, and uh, uh, Pfizer and Moderna are continuing to refuse to allow the release of their proprietary information legally to allow pharmaceuticals throughout Africa Central and South America to produce their vaccines for their populations. Thank you. That's it. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And right before the break, we're listening to a, um, a historical footage piece that deals with the role of the Central Intelligence Agency. They have a history of creating fake news. This piece was back in the early 80s, talking about the role and the fake news that were creating 
on the movements in Africa, particularly Angola, Namibia, etc. Now, the reason why I'm bringing out this this piece as a reminder, I often wonder that when we hear about this issue of what's going on in the Soviet Union, Ukraine, what's going on in in, in, in Nicaragua or El Salvador or Venezuela, what's going going on in Cuba, they once taught me that the enemy has a philosophy. The enemy has a philosophy in which if anything he has done in the past was successful, then they will never change. So would you, Brother Haki, when we're looking at this um, thing we call television and this propaganda, the constant coming out today, how much of this stuff can we truly, truly believe with our eyes? Uh, this some, yeah, this another repeat of giving people messages of deception and fake news. Let me just briefly raise a little history. One of the reasons why our ancestors weren't allowed to read and write was because once you learn to read and write, then you can actually extrapolate. Uh, in other words, you can read two things, put them together, and make some def- definitive I- have some definitive idea in terms of the implications of those two things that you read. So your ability to contrast, your ability to adequately understand the world, uh, is, in, is, is increased by your by virtual ability of having the ability to read and write. So people in positions of power understood that, and not only did they keep African people ignorant in terms of the ability to read and write. Poor white folks also would deny the bill in terms of being able to read and write. So the so we can say that those people in positions of power historically have always understand that in order to perpetuate their power, one of the things they have to do is keep people ignorant. And of course, how do you keep people ignorant? Not only do you deny them proper education, but more important, just as important, you utilize propaganda, which tends to confuse the situation. So people don't have a clear understanding in terms of what's going on. So all of those places that you alluded to in terms of the past, in terms of CIA operations, uh, those operations work hand-in-hand with the State Department, uh, who in turn work hand-in-hand with the other intelligence communities in terms of making sure not only are those policies carried through, but also those same policies are implemented from different perspectives based upon the organization uh, that carries them out. So the CIA strategy is not the same as the FBI strategy in, in those countries. Or what's not as the same as corporate strategies in those countries, but they all act work, work toward the same objective. So we have to understand the role of propaganda. Now, because propaganda is so powerful and it's very, very effective, and uh, one of the things that we have to do, one way we can uh, undermine propaganda's effectiveness, the more we read, the more we can begin to see through the propaganda. But we have to read. We have to, we have to humble ourselves there, and we have to read. As painful as it is, as boring as it is. As much as we may not like to do it, but in order for us to adequately discern what is true and what is false, then we have to read. That is key. Uh, but, in the, but in terms of propaganda about Africa, here's the thing people have to understand. Recently, as recently as three months ago, the U.S. government decided to invest $235 million for in probably privately independent uh, media outlets throughout the world. Now, keep in mind, these privately independent media outlets have always existed. The U.S. always funded these organizations. But now they're going, they're going to increase it to $235 million in 2022. 
So that's a 40% increase from 2021. And so what they're telling you is that their ability in terms of deceiving people is somehow in question. And so what they're doing is they're creating, putting more money into that process in terms of doing a more adequate job in terms of conditioning or tricking the masses of people in terms of understanding what's going on. Of course, I submit to you this, this attempt in terms of deceiving other people can, can't last forever. Or you're not going to deceive everybody all the time. I mean, it simply ain't going to happen. But clearly, this, these expenditures is, is, is an indication that they feel that they're not doing an adequate job in terms of deceiving the world. And as the consciousness of the world rises, their ability to maintain control suffers. And so, therefore, for them, there's a certain amount of desolation that's taking place. Now, this program uh, called the Media Viability Accelerator has been funded by the, the U, in part by the U.S. Aid and Information Development. For those of you who don't know what the U.S. Aid and Information Development is, the U.S. AID, it's the CIA. I can't be any more clear than that. For those who think it somehow is there because it's, it's some kind of non-governmental organization that is concerned about the aspiration of the people in those countries, certainly not. They're their wing of the, of the their wing of the Central Intelligence Agency, and they're 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 tasked with running this particular program. And the whole thing is that you know uh, you know and I got to say this, brother, after it's important I point this out. That but when you have programs that provide clarity in terms of what's going on around the world, particularly when it comes from an economic perspective in terms of what's going on. Those programs are viewed very, very carefully. And it poses, it poses a real dilemma for people, those people in positions of power, particularly intelligence communities, because one of the things they can refute, they can refute, you say, some scenario uh, that I, I, I talk about uh, that's based upon, you know, my understanding in terms of reading of history. But when I talk about the hardcore economics or the hardcore science of the system, they can't refute that, so it becomes very, very problematic. So even if they put out a lot of disinformation to sort of muddy the waters and sort of confuse people around what being said, it comes out as somewhat, somewhat ambiguous. And as long as the information comes out ambiguous, it's a win for us because that means that the masses of people begin to understand that what the, state, what the intelligence community, what the, what the state is telling them is in doubt. So that means that's a win for progressive organizations, progressive individuals who understand the whole strategy behind propaganda. But to answer your question, Brother Africa, and I'll close with this, uh, yes, uh, propaganda is quite effective in terms of the bill, in terms of muddying the water and deceiving the masses of people. And you're right. Uh, the more they're effective in terms of doing that, the more they'll maintain, they'll maintain, uh, they'll maintain that, same, that same strategy. But fortunately, that strategy is, is, is under assault. And increasingly, more and more people begin to see the state, begin to see the intelligence community for what it is, and begin to understand that in order to create a new paradigm in the world, in the society, that you, that we have to, as as a, as a human species, that we have to unite to bring about a different, a, a better day, a new world order. So clearly, uh, you're also correct, Brother Africa. It is a historical strategy they have used with some success. Your response, Brother Anthony. Uh, yes. Can you repeat your question, please? And my question was, listening to the piece just now, titled "The CIA and Fake News in the in the 1980s." They talk about uh, the, the the tactic of creating intentional deception, fake fake news to create a certain perception in the minds of the public, general public. On reality of what was really happening when it really was not, and they taught me that once the enemy has found something that they have been successful in, 
that's not something good. Well, they will continue to do that. I'm saying, looking at the looking at the world today, and looking at what we see on on the television every day. Do you think that the same thing is going on today, particularly as it relates to this whole this whole narrative of this confrontation between this Russia and Ukraine, or looking at how they are uh, treating Cuba, Venezuela, Ecuador, Colombia? Looking at this whole question, Haiti, this this whole narrative in terms of what we are seeing. Is this a whole a, a whole world of deception? Yes, uh, it uh, it could be. Uh, unfortunately, uh, let's see, because uh, the bourgeoisie has control over the educational system, we're subject to. Uh, we're all victims of it in a sense. And uh, let's see, and uh, I think what the ruling class is exploiting is uh, is the U.S. citizenry's ignorance of what goes on in the world. And uh, that is by design. And uh, there is a lot of confusion out there, unfortunately, because, uh, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, you know, are victims of uh, U.S. propaganda. And a lot of us don't take the time to do our own research and study. And, uh, and it's more critical that we do that, uh, you know, for the sake of our survival. Uh, let alone our quality of life. And uh, it's a very difficult task because a lot of us are stuck in jobs that consume the bulk of our day and the bulk of our energy. So it's difficult to find the time to do that kind of research, but it is necessary. Thank you, Brother Anthony. This is Eleanor. One of the things that took place this week, I happened to be looking at a um, um, a feature on what's that guy, Roland Martin. Um, uh, he has a digital uh, TV program, and he invited this world-renowned top scientist who specialized in viruses. I can't think of the first name, but it was Doctor First Initial, Doctor A. R. Rowling. W-L-L-I-N-G. And he said something that really interesting, and he also said something that seemed to ruffle uh, Roland's um, attention or his narrative about this question about um, one should be um, receiving these vaccination shots. Now, he is, this, this guy is a scientist. This is what he does. He, he has something like six degrees in the medical field. And he said, based upon his study and everything, these vaccines that America America is proposing to be using to deal with this virus, it does nothing. It doesn't address anything as relates to either stopping you from getting it or even being able to uh, eradicate it. 
And he and Martin uh, wrote a Martin sort of surprised at that kind of response. And he asked the brother, uh, um, are you vaccinated? And the brother said, no. The brother said, he, he is not vaccinated. He won't get it. And it was really interesting looking at their dialogue. Now, what I'm saying is, there's been a survey that seems to correspond with one so-called level of intelligence education and now willingness to be vaccinated. For example, what can you draw from they stated that they did a survey and they noticed that the more conscious, the more intellectual, the more educated, the more intelligent a, a person is, the less likely for them to be vaccinated. But the least conscious, the least educated um, a person is, the most likely who will be vaccinated. So looking at the doctor's response, who is a scientist, is his science, his information, will he share with the medical field and teach them? He's saying these, these, these knowledge they put out, um, it's not true. I'm just wondering, in terms of hearing that, and he's a scientist, and he had many other scientists. And matter of fact, I think that was a rally today with many scientists around the world uh, came into D.C. to tell their narrative because they say the major media is 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 trying to make like they are not legitimate and they don't know what they're talking about and disproves it and, and um, trying to delegitimize their scientific their their scientific knowledge. Who are we supposed to believe, believe since Eleanor? I'm more inclined to believe in the scientists. Where do you stand on that? Well, I believe in following the science, Brother Africa. And as you said, today there was a demonstration um, of everyone, of a, of, of a demonstration. This is the Capitol. People come to demonstrate. And uh, one of the guys, that was here today. He's banned from the internet because he had been putting out disinformation. And the reality is, right now, Brother Africa, uh, I'm not so much concerned about the people who have decided they don't want to take the vaccine. That's up to them. We know vaccines don't stop disease. We know it; they eliminate death. You know, when we were children, we all received our vaccines for the for chicken pox, for the measles, for polio. So, you know, the reality is bunches of us got chicken pox. We just didn't die from the chicken pox. But the reality is I'm concerned, Brother Africa, about Moderna and Pfizer making available the proprietary information available to the pharmaceuticals around the world who wish to produce the vaccines. And for countries like Kenya and South Africa, where they said they'll do their own outreach to communicate with their people, they just want to have the ability not to steal the vaccine, not to misappropriate but for that proprietary knowledge to be given willingly to organ to pharmaceuticals throughout the world while this pandemic is going on. So I think that's very important. And as for those who do not wish to take the vaccine, 
that's great. But there are some who are on the bench and don't know whether or not they want to. And I think as long as there are people like that, we should continue to do education and outreach. You know, I'm not uh, familiar with Dr. Rowland, but uh, I do know the guy that was putting out all this misinformation and uh, the big Trump supporter, and uh, they've taken him off the Internet. So I don't think he has, I don't think they would have taken a real scientist down. People may disagree with his ideas, but not to the point of taking him down. He was taken down because of disinformation. And it wasn't a meeting of scientists, as I understand. It was a meeting of citizens who are opposed to the mask mandate. They're opposed to the vaccine. They consider it a political injustice. My concern is that taxpayers paid for the development of this vaccine, and it should be made available to the public. I noticed that uh, when uh, Moderna produced their report on who created the vaccine and this and that, they ignored four science, government scientists, including an, uh, uh, a woman, an African, African woman, African-American woman who participates in the development and research. So I find that quite interesting that they excluded the government, four government scientists. But uh, if people, I want the folks who want to be able to have access to the vaccine to, to do so, Brother Africa. And yes, the vaccine does not appear to be stopping uh, people from becoming infected with the new variant but it does seem to prevent death. And I had an opportunity to observe an unvaccinated person suffer. Uh, I didn't observe them directly other than that uh, we were uh, ill. And unfortunately, I, I don't know, I don't think it was a good outcome for that person. <clears throat> but who knows what was wrong with the person. But the reality is, Brother Africa, there are many who, as we know, who are resistant to being vaccinated. But the science tells us that for those that are vaccinated, they are less likely to die from the virus than those who are not. And it's a personal choice. And it depends on your health and your strength. Many people Two can days, be sister, infected with this coronavirus, days. and they don't even have any symptoms, brother. Two things, says Eleanor. Number one, he not the first scientist that is being consistent to saying this this whole um, drama around this virus is just that. I mean, he also elaborate that this what what, what this uh, vaccine does more than anything. It has an impact on immune system weakness. And say so if you continue to talk about taking these so-called booster shots, what it will do is have so you have very little resistance in terms of uh, in terms of your natural immune. So this is 
what he has came up with, and many others, not the word scientists. We ain't talking about people who thinking. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, we continue to believe the narratives about you no know, folks who now getting sick are more likely not taking the shots. These are the same people who have created this whole deception from the beginning. They didn't tell you about what this past year, according to some, so, some important. They have received already over a billion dollars in profit behind the scheme. While at the same time, if you look at the behavior of the state, of the state itself, they are allowing people to set up shops to pretend that they can give you shots and shooting people and giving them fake cards, and no one is monitoring them in this particular, in the U.S. Now, I would just think something that's serious, it would be very difficult for you to easily just set up, set up shop, give out fake cards, and no one is held accountable. So I'm just saying something don't seem right to me, and I just think the people need to seriously um, – Continue to um, research and, and hold off on this question of, of getting something that may have a not only impact on your life, but they can have an impact on future human beings as a sort of entering, entering these kind of uh, fun things into your body. Now, what is interesting, he's not talking about vaccines all around the world. He's talking about the major vaccines that have been used in the U.S., I don't hear people making these kind of, scientists making these kind of claims against the vaccines that the Cubans are using. Why there's such a, uh, is, is possible? There's a big difference between the variations of these vaccines, and some may be helpful for the human body, where others are not. I think, you know, it's, it's just too much out there that the people are not following to continue to be blinded, uh, led down the path of, um, do these things that we hear on these these, these, these shows that are basically controlled by the same capitalists who are benefiting from your sickness. So I'm just trying to give people something to think about, my sister. It's not about a position one may take, but just to give people something to think about. But we thank you for your response. For, for your response. And Brother Africa, I uh, just want to share that. Yes. That you're, you're uh, <clears throat> right that there are there's been a lot of disinformation that's been fed to the public. It's been made a public, a political issue rather than a health issue. And you said the key thing, that Moderna and Pfizer, they don't care about distributing the vaccine to those who can't pay for it. If you don't have the money to pay for it, obviously they're not making it available. And that's a real issue. And, yes, Cuba uh, appears to be sharing their vaccines with other nations. And there had been some questions in terms of blood clots with the European uh, vaccine um, produced by AstraZeneca. So this is an issue where rather than moving ahead uh, with knowledge, and information where we're always playing catch-up. We haven't even been able to adequately test people and make tests available. So we're definitely behind the eight ball, and we all need to continue to do our research and to do everything we can to keep ourselves healthy. And very basic things like wearing our masks, washing our hands, 
and those kind of things. So it is a, definitely a, a question for the public because we're now on year two. But one thing we can't ignore, Brother Africa, are the over a quarter million people who died from this virus in this country. Well, no one is in mind the essence of the since I don't know, no one may not be denying the essence of the, of the virus exists because we are clear that we think, many of us believe it may, it's a biological warfare that that virus was created. That's another thing. If you begin to do your research, most people have all came to the conclusion that this is not a natural virus. It's a man-made virus. Just as others, this whole drama is man-made creation. So no one is not question if a virus exists. No one is questioning if it, if, it, if, it, if it can kill you. But we are questioning, though, number one, the solution to a technique these vaccines are not really legitimate. They cause more harm than damages. That's the issue that, that people is raising. So anyway, sister, we just, we are sharing our ideas back and forth and trying to get our listening audience something to think about. You know, we got to have independent thinkers. So, you know, we gave them some information and they can go on their own and, and, and do their own research. But my business is, you know, don't get tricked and fall for the okie doke. So like the 9 level. Right they want to that, make you think. Because this, this they, week, uh, they, they released information that uh, it had an impact, not a, allegedly not a permanent impact, but a temporary impact on uh, male fer- fertility. Um, now, I, I, I don't know, and we don't know what, what the long-term effects are, but apparently it didn't render these men sterile. It just reduced their sperm count. Now, uh, that's, that I found interesting. But if, it's, uh, if the vaccine will uh, save your life, and 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 it has a, this temporary side effect, like many cancer drugs, you know, have an impact on your life. My issue, Eleanor, that is their narrative. I don't buy it. You do, but I don't. That's what we different at. That's the point I'm making. And um, yeah. I think we need to have a balance in terms of perspective. We allow people we really to speak do. down. We're I can right speak of minds. I can think that other folks got to make up their own mind. That's that's all I'm just saying to you in terms of that. To that situation, I don't buy that narrative. But anyway, sister, let's move on. This is Africa on the Move to our listening audience. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a station break. We're going to leave you with some revolutionary culture. And when we come back, we want you to join us as we discuss our theme tonight. That's right, blacks are not Americans, or in essence, Africans are not Americans. And that's true, because we're Africans. But anyway, let's talk about this particular theme and articles that relate to this theme when we come back. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back, and don't you go nowhere. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. What is good for? 
listen to me.
Welcome back to Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Right now, we're going back to the Radio Rebels. And we're going to start off today speaking on our theme tonight, which is Blacks are not Americans. That's right. McConnell, the so-called senator in Washington, D.C., May recently made a statement that blacks are not Americans. He even qualified that even further by stating that all those who in this country who are not um, Americans are those who have to be Africans who came here. Now, we're talking about this question of the truth and this whole question of propaganda. Is this a propaganda piece or is this just the truth? Is he telling the truth? So, right now, I'll open it up, start off with Brother Anthony. You know, we read an article that recently came out talking about um, the statement that was made by McConnell, where he stated that, you know, Africans in this country are not Americans. Now, was he telling the truth? Is this, what is this big, this big hip, you know, this big, Array, hear people array about, you know, he said something wrong. Is it that sometimes when we don't hear the truth, it's hard to know it, but he's so used to hearing lies? Brother Anthony, being a senator, coming out of his words, are there any kind of symbolic gestures that we should pick up and a hidden message that we should learn from the statement or just take it for generic for what it just means? Africans in the country, so blacks in this country are American. Your take on this, Brother Anthony. Okay, let me read, uh, start out by reading the full quote. He said that calling the concern about minority voters having less access to the ballot box misplaced. McConnell told reporters uh because because if you look at the statistics african american voters are voting in in just as high a percentage as americans and uh and uh it seems as if McConnell thinks the only real Americans are those who are uh, who are uh, European descent in his mind, and uh, you know, and probably a lot of uh, European political figures feel that way. He's just being—he uh, was just being more honest than most of them are, and. Uh, uh, and I think, uh, uh, you know, looking at our history, we should be asking ourselves, uh, is voting in and, in and of itself sufficient? I would contend it's not. And uh, it, it, it comes down who you're voting for. And if you're voting for any member of the duopoly, it does not. It, it, it does not, and has not 
serve that interest in the nearly 125 some odd years we've had the right to vote, which was added to the U.S. Constitution. It wasn't there in the first place. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, give me your take on on this statement by McConnell. Uh, you know what I mean? It seems so straightforward for those who understand that history. And maybe not. But Haki, where are you on this issue? Yeah. Uh, first, Brother Africa, let me just go back, backtrack a little bit. I normally don't do that, but I have to do this because I'm just, some things just, some things have to be confronted. And one of the things is that you know, if we're going to make the claim information is this, if, if a scientist says something, and we make the claim is is this disinformation, or we or we're or the general assumption, assumption that uh, if something said that we disagree with is this function of disinformation, then it seems to me if we're going to raise that question to disinformation, then we have to at least articulate the incentive for the disinformation. So for those scientists who tell you about the reality in terms of COVID nineteen, Omicron, Delta, and so forth and so on. For those scientists who speak honestly about the science behind that, uh, what incentive do they have to be dishonest or to engage in disinformation? There's more imperative, more incentive for those positions of power to engage in disinformation. So I would like to, so I like to, so I would like to at least throw this out to the panelists. If we're going to say something that's disinformation, then I would like to hear, you know, from a logical point of view, what is the incentive to engage in disinformation? Because otherwise, when you say that. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you say disinformation, it makes it sound like you're somebody who, uh, who is uh, not particularly informed or not particularly concerned about the issues of the day. And that, that just bothers me. So I just had to say, throw that out there. Uh, you know, but anyway, to your question, Brother Africa, you know, um, there, is a bit of, there is a bit of a supposition uh, that, that Econo is making. So when we talk about access to the ballot box, uh, one of the things, you know, when he's talking about the fact of, uh, you know that that black people vote more than regular Americans, and you can include that in uh, two kind of ways. One way you can include it, you can you can cl- conclude, you can say that well, he's saying well these people's votes are not being discarded. Uh, the second point you may you may conclude is that he's saying that if voter suppression exists, it doesn't exist against black people because they vote at uh, at uh, at the numbers uh, consistent with the population numbers. So clearly, you know, you can draw, the, draw those, those suppositions. But I think more importantly, I think the real implication is Brother Africa. I think what he's really saying, and I don't think it was a fraudulent slip. I don't think he just slipped and accidentally said that. I think he just wanted to con- convey the position of the Republican Party in, in a sense, you know, that constitutionally speaking, this notion that African people in America are, in fact, citizens of the United States has never been proven. Uh, this this notion that we're still three fifths of a person has never been uh, amended in the Constitution. Nobody is even talking about getting rid of that that particular that particular part of the Constitution. No one. Uh, so clearly, you know. Uh, so even when you talk in the context of voting's rights, and when you say that in order for us to vote, that it has to be ratified every twenty years, every twenty years, then what you're saying is that these people are not citizens. Citizens don't have to ratify the right to vote every twenty years. Only the other has to ratify every twenty years in order to vote. So for those people who 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 are, who are die, those diehard Africans who want to believe, yes, I'm I'm an American, it's fine that you say that, and that's all well and good. But the history, the Constitution said that you're not. And the question is, given that given that reality, 
The question is, what are we going to do in terms of empowering ourselves? We have to understand that in the reality is that we're in a very, um, a, a, we, we, we're up against a very uh, combative, uh, if not um, uh, a, 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 a very hostile uh, system, uh, which doesn't have our best interests at heart. And recognizing that, it seems to me that it makes sense in terms of what can we do in terms of problem ourselves, because we've got to become autonomous. We have to think in terms of self-determination. We've got to think in terms of, listen, we've got to do it for ourselves. Otherwise, you know, we wait for others to do for us, then we're in real trouble. So I think O'Connor, Mitch McConnell's statement, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a wake-up call. I think for those people who really don't, who really believe that, in fact, that, uh, we're, that we're African people. Uh, I'm reminded of Malcolm X when he said, we, you know, you don't put a cat in the, in, the, in the oven and bake them and call them a biscuit. Uh, because you were born here doesn't mean that you're qualified as, as, a citizen, as a citizen. And what is interesting, when you look at the social economic indicators in terms of what it is to be acting in society and consistently being on the bottom, that in itself is problematic. But even more so, when you start thinking about in terms of educational expenditures, in terms of money, access to quality books and technology that people need to compete in a technological society, we look at those kind of expenditures and the, level, and the, the, the low levels that they occupy in terms of African schools in these cities, then you ask yourself, then, God damn, if, 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 we, if our children are citizens of the damn nation, what the hell is going on here? Can someone tell me what is the justification for that? That's crazy. Citizens should be citizens. There should be no discrepancy in terms of expenditures for education. It should be across the board equal. What they have in suburban schools, they should have in city schools. What they have in city schools, they have, should have in rural areas. So there should be no discrepancy. So at some point, people, African people have to wait but realize the reality is that even though you want to believe that, in fact, that you're, I'm talking to you black conservatives, even though you want to believe that you're, you're a citizen, the history, the Constitution say you're not. Now refute that, and I'll close with that. And just to add to that point, his statement is no more different or profound than the statement that um, Biden recently made when it came to they were talking about um, the major threats of this country, and he made a statement which he said outside of the Africans here being a threat to the state to this country. He, he said he think the major one outside of that fact is that the idea that Europeans will become a minority in the next twenty thirty years. So you know, I'm just wondering again. They are sending all kind of signals out to let you know that you are not what they're telling you that you are. And that's American. Sister Eleanor, talk to me. Where are you on the position? What can we draw from this statement from McConnell? What is your your position on this statement, Sister Eleanor? Well, um, Brother Africa, you know, when uh, Donald Trump, like he did Saturday before last and has done, and in his speech, speeches when he talks about the fraudulent votes in Atlanta, and in Philadelphia and in Detroit, it's always been a cold word for African-American voters. And with these 39 states that have passed these voter suppression laws, they seem to be targeting African-American votes. And I think he uh, spoke freely. And the disenfranchisement uh, of us, a real reality, and you and and you had mentioned previously uh, the reality that every twenty or twenty-five years ago, we have to reaffirm the Voters' Rights Act, 
So once you become a citizen as an immigrant, you're good to vote forever. But somehow African-Americans are disenfranchised. And it just speaks to the racism that we endure every day and uh, the reality that uh, this is the sentiment that we have to deal with every day from from not only the police but at the ballot box and so many places in life. Now, it's true the middle class thinks they are above it, but I think Mitch McConnell made it clear that we're not when he made that statement that uh, 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 calling the concern about minority voters having less access to the ballot box uh, misplaced. McConnell uh, told reporters, because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters, and I'm quoting him now, I, I actually heard him, African-American voters are voting in just as high uh, as a percentage as American voters. I mean, that, that, that tells it all. And when you see them eliminating polling booths in, 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 in black communities, it's intended to marginalize the black vote. Now, voting isn't the end all to solving our political problems. But it is definitely a right that we do not want to lose, Brother Africa. And there are many blacks who, uh, during the last election in November 2020, I met many uh, African-American voters who just said it didn't matter uh, whether or not they voted, and they had never voted, and they weren't voting. So it's not like we have an exceptionally high number of African-American voters. But the reality is we do need access to the ballot, and we do need people to be able to uh, be registered to vote without any hassle. We don't need these Jim Crow ID laws. We don't need the it to be a crime for someone to offer someone standing in line uh, with water or, yeah. Real quickly, we have to move on. But one quick point. Does voting make you who you are? You say you're America because we vote. Suppose we go to somewhere else and vote. Do that make us something else because we went to another place that can vote? Suppose we go to Russia and can vote. Does that make you a Russian? Suppose we go to China and we can vote. Does that make us a Chinese? Suppose you go to uh, Ireland. Does that make you an Irishman? Southern Africa, that's not even the issue right now. The issue right now is Mitch McConnell spoke his mind that there was 48 votes and we could not get the John Lewis uh, Voters' Rights Amendment passed or the Freedom to Vote Act passed. And we have been waiting for these two bills to be passed for over, uh, over a year, long before... Biden took office. They were sitting there. And it really speaks to the disenfranchisement of African-American people and the struggle 
that we are facing in this country to combat racism and discrimination. Uh, thank you, my sister. Brother Moses, talk to us. What do you make of this statement? Why do we fight so hard to try to be something that we are not? Brother Moses, give me your thoughts. First of all, let me tell you, it's the correctness or incorrectness of your ideological and political land that is decisive. And, um, you know, people have a, have have the facts and different information, but then the overall narrative is dependent on your ideological uh, outlook and how much you see class struggle and, and how you see things things developing and how you and what you believe a just society should look like. And so people so a lot of people have made up their minds there's no change in I mean on 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 various issues they're just looking for things that reinforce their position and information that reinforces their position and there's no change in their in their overall position. And so, you know, uh I I'm with Doctor Martin Luther King. We want all our rights, we want them here and we want them now. It's a struggle. It's not something that's just going to happen overnight. It's a class struggle going on. There's a political economy, and you have to demand your rights. And uh, and uh, power can seize nothing without without a demand. And uh, and people who don't demand their rights uh, are subject to not have their rights. And so, and, and on the question of if you have the right to vote in in China, that makes you. Uh, 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 a citizen, you have the citizen rights of a Chinese, uh, basically. If, if they, but uh, I don't know how you would get that right. Uh, uh, it's just not, it wouldn't happen overnight. I mean, uh, you you have to struggle to get to get rights, and uh, and uh, it's a political struggle. And you know, people that made up their mind and, and chose their sides, and and and. Uh, and uh, I made up my mind and chose my side, and so that's that's the way it goes. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Let's transition to another article as it relates to our theme tonight. Blacks are not Americans, or Africans are not Americans, and you know, also, you know, you are what you are based on how people treat you. When we look at this article, title was "He Framed for Killing Black Kids to Get the Clan Off the Hook." It's an article written by Kali Holloway on uh, dealing with this case, uh, dealing with Wayne Williams, who was a very young man about 34 years ago in Atlanta, who accused of being a mass killer. When we look at, it, look at the article, it raised so many um, issues that reinforce you know, our, our, our history of being here on why we could not be American. Brother Haki, from this article, are there anything from this article that would indicate to you that if he was an American, he wouldn't be treated like that? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, you, you know, one of the things, you know, uh, you know, let's let, let me let me just clarify something. I think it's important we understand. Listen, if, if people think that voting is the the, the avenue by which we should proceed uh, in terms of empowerment, then by by all means. Go ahead and vote. I wouldn't stand in your way. I wouldn't discourage you to vote. I said go vote. But my only position is that under, under after 150 years, you know, if it doesn't um, if it doesn't bring about the desired results, then strategically, don't you think it's time to make take a different approach? 
after all, that old adage, you know, if you if you continue to do the same thing and expect a different outcome is by reason insanity, I think that we have to give pause in terms of that particular thing because clearly, you know, when we look at the desperation impacting the African community, which is not getting better, which is actually deteriorating, then we have to ask ourselves, God damn, I mean, if, 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 we, if we've been for 150 years and the situation is deteriorating, then what are we doing wrong? I mean, it just seems to me, but maybe I'm just being a bit... Uh, a bit, uh, bit uh, um, uh, complacent in, uh, in my in my views. Uh, but anyway, brother Africa, um, you know, ask your question. Um, in terms of uh, uh, Dwayne, uh, what's his name? Uh, Wayne Williams. Uh, one of the things, clearly, you know, I think that, and just in terms of, you know, as as a human being, in terms of as a citizen, having access to human rights, uh, the, the, the 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 justification behind charging uh, Wayne Williams in the first place is suspect. Supposedly, it is, at least it's alleged, that he killed two young black kids. Well, even if that's true, then how do you extrapolate without any evidence to say that 23 additional children were killed by him? So none of this makes any sense at all. And the mere fact that one of the individuals who were responsible in terms of stating that he overheard Wayne Williams uh, say things that were negative toward African children, of course, was a lie. But one of the people who actually said that was, was a white Klansman. So then you ask yourself, wait a minute, how is it that this 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 Klansman, this 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 white individual has such this unique relationship, you know, with Wayne Williams, but that wasn't established in court. So clearly, so enough, nothing is, makes any sense at all. But just in terms of incentive, one of the things you got to consider seriously is that when you start talking about putting all those charges on Wayne Williams, which by the way is something they do all the time to clear the books. I mean, after all, it's, this system is an adversarial system; it's not based upon justice. It's based upon it's based upon statistics, based upon you know, so it's adversarial. So if you get someone who's poor and impoverished and don't have a, a good lawyer, then you take advantage of the situation, you convict them. Your books look good, you like your fighting crime. And no one stops and say, Hey man, that's morally bankrupt because in the context of capitalism, nothing is bankrupt as long as the bottom line is uh is satisfied. In particular when we talk about incarceration equates to lots and lots of money. So clearly people in positions of power want to have access to those bodies in, in prison because investments in those bodies means lots and lots of dollars. So clearly there is an incentive in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, uh, Western you know, uh, uh, people who were at the very minimum perceived as somehow not American. Clearly, Brother Africa, I, I think that, um, you know, uh, had Wayne Williams been perceived as, as, a, as an American, I think he, they would probably say, listen, even though if we clear him in terms of, you know, these the, the, the outside other other than the, the two killings, even if we kill them with the twenty additional killings, the problem is that it still leaves the problem in terms of who killed the twenty three African children. Which means they were very much concerned about the possibility that African community would, and rightfully so the African community would react because they realized the implicit threat imposed by the right wing of society in terms of their health and their longevity on this on this, on this planet. So clearly people in position of power had a legitimate interest in terms of making sure that people don't come to the realization there's something fundamentally askew in terms of the death of these young African children and that the possibility that the Klansman had a role in terms of killing these children was justified in concealing. So I think, Brother Africa, I, I think that when you look at it, but one other thing, when you look at the role in terms of the black leadership in Atlanta at the time, because, of course, black, the black leadership in Atlanta is pretty big on being American. They're, they're very big on that. They really believe that uh, Atlanta is the center of the universe. Uh, you know, they were, you know, Atlanta is greater than New York. Atlanta is greater than Philly or Washington or any, you know, 
it is the, it is the, the, the cultural capital of uh, for, 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 for quote-unquote black America in terms of social standing. So they really believe that, in fact, that Atlanta offers something unique for African people. In that context, the design in terms of being America is, is very, 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 very clearly substantiated. But I think, Brother Africa, I think if he was, in fact, in, perceived as an American, that people in positions of power would say, listen, what we're doing is fundamentally wrong, even though we're looking at two murders, to attach three, 23 additional murders to his charges is simply unfathomable and something that we won't participate in. But because he's powerless and he's not perceived, quote unquote, as an American, his life is, his life is esoteric. It's not important. So now I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hockey, Brother Anthony. For this article, is there anything that, that will allow you to view Wayne Williams as being an American? Your response? Uh, none. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think he was sacrificed in order to maintain uh, Atlanta, uh, Atlanta's image as uh you know the uh you know the uh as a city that was uh that's too busy to hate and uh as a model of the Pope's civil rights south and uh you know and uh this situation uh with these uh uh murders uh was tarnishing that image and uh so i think it was uh in the interest of atlanta's uh 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 black uh african misleadership class to put this matter away as soon as possible <laughs> So I think, uh, you know, Wayne uh, Williams, uh, in retrospect, was used as a scapegoat. Thank you, Brother Anthony. uh, uh Go ahead, Brother Anthony. Finish your statement, Brother Anthony. Yes, sure. Uh, And that, uh, you know, and the the fact is, uh, let's I was going to add that uh, our rights were added to the Constitution. That means to me that they could be taken away, uh, you know, by the middle, uh, by the political machinations of that same class. Thank you, brother. After brother Moses, talk to me. Talk to me, brother Moses. You in the seat? You say you're going to take the heat and you're going to define and stand behind it. When you saw read this article, what aspect of this article would give you indications that they view Wayne Will as being an American? Well, first of all, let me say, uh, um, I, Wayne William, he wasn't charged with those 23 murders, was he? I mean, the best of my knowledge, he was charged with two of them. And um, so, you know, the, the rest of it is politics and uh, and. Uh, and uh, whatever people believe and um and the propaganda around it um it's a good idea it's a good chance that the Ku Klux Klan was behind it um um and you know no doubt uh um but yeah um Wayne Williams you know the um 
the police department and the the the, the, the judicial system um, uh, as broken as it is um, came up with this this uh, suspect and charge him with a crime, and that's that's what I see happen. Uh, um, and the the fact that they didn't continue and looking for the clan and uh, that's that's problematic. Um, um, uh, but I think you know, like um, uh, his rights as a as a citizen was 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 um you know is is within the juris, jurisdiction of the the law and um the lawyers and the court case and et cetera how it was applied uh I don't know that he he was treated as a non citizen i uh I don't get that part uh uh, uh I just don't get it uh I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, talk to us. What is your position on this issue? What do you take from this article? Quite, quite frankly, as uh, when they identified the witness that had uh, uh, falsely identified himself and was, in fact, a Klansman fighting against Williams, I would concur with the one of the parents of the nine-year-old victim. Williams himself was the 30th victim. There were 29 victims, but William was victim number, number 30. And what uh, Mayor Keisha <clears throat> uh, Bottoms is doing is in allowing a real investigation after 40 years is going to reveal the truth because that 8100 file was suppressed. No one had access to it. There was no legitimate DNA. And as the article revealed, the very Bureau of Investigation clinic that was used to uh, uh, allege the guilt of Williams has been used 52 times the uh, the information from that clinic has led to the reversal of 52 wrongfully convicted persons to be released. And I believe this is what's going to happen with the uh, Wayne Williams case. I never believed he was guilty. I I I had always believed it was potentially uh the clan or some other white vigilante group. These were children that were uh murdered and then placed in creeks and and wooded areas intentionally to be intentionally to be found. Murdered so they they took the lives of these children and then further terrorized the community by making sure that their bodies were found in in conspicuous place places by other children often it it it's it's a horror it was uh terrorism and the reality that uh uh that um uh, mayor bottoms decided to take action it's about time many of the people that made these bad decisions 
uh, probably retired and moved on. But it's never too late for the truth, brother. And and this Williams is nothing but another victim in this horrible, horrible in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I believe that uh, the truth is going to come out with the modern DNA and information that and science that's available to uh, let the truth be be known. Uh, uh, I, I I I hope that there'll be full cooperation uh, with all those, and that there'll be more scrutiny than there was during the uh, Williams trial, because as the analyst said, two persons he was uh, charged with the murder of two, and they piled the other uh, twenty-seven on him. And uh, he's been sitting in uh, prison for the last 40 years. And the murderer or murderers are free and probably have been continuing to murder others who are missing and not anyone is not looking for them or filed missing persons reports. Africans are being murdered at a phenomenal rate in this country, not only by police, but by a series of vigilantes and others. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. To our listening audience, this is Africa on the Moon. We're dealing with the first segment of the two-part segment, Blacks are not African. We're going to take this roughly to the culture break, and when we come back, our political panelists and analysts are going to give us their final thoughts for tonight. This is Africa on the Move. Brother in chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. News, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, We must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino. 
a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay, the clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. This is the, a first part of a two-part series, Blacks Are Not Africans. Before we make our final remarks with our political panelists and analysts today, like always, we'd like to remind you, if you haven't purchased your book yet, please do so. Purchase um the recent release book from the Pan-Africa title, We Demand the Full Disclosure and Digitization of All Slavery Era Records, Volume 1 and 2, authored by Brown. For more information, go and check out the website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. That's right. It's a book that should be in your library. So if you haven't got it, please go out and support the author and get that book so you can learn more about your history, how you got here, who brought you here, and what you were worth. 
according to their books. So this is information we need to help us move forward. So please check out their site and purchase the book. Our second announcement is that from Guantanamo to Santiago to Havana, that's right, Africa on Move in conjunction with the African Women's Association, we organized the African delegation to come to Cuba as we do this annual Black History Education and Culture Tour. This will be a challenge tour. If you're interested in going with us, you need to act now by calling us at 804-549-7492 or 202-714-9435. Or you can check the website out at www.aaa-cubacubatour.com. You know, at the bare minimum, we can go and show our gratitude for all that Cuba has done for Africa and African people, but also to give you another alternative for how a society can organize itself. That's right. Come and join us. So those are our announcements for this particular program. What we're going to do now, we're going to make our closing remarks from our political panelists today, and we start off with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Brother Moses, talk to us. It's been an interesting show. Um, I think you know, like we have to, we have to study um, and um, politics, political science, um, Marxism, Leninism, uh, um, to understand class struggle and the various interests in the in the in the political economy we we're faced with. We came here as slaves. And nobody's given us anything. Everything we've got is we, what we fought for, and that's that's the way it's been. That's the way it's gonna be. If we can't expect the white power structure to to uh, just hand over uh, power, it's not gonna happen. Uh, uh, and so, you know, it's not shocking the situation we're faced with if we if we really understand what's been going on and how, how long we've been struggling and. Uh, and the struggle continues, and so I say that to say, you know, we we uh, we have to demand our rights uh, and fight for our rights. Um, you know. Um, anyway, I, 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 it's 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 easier said than done. Um, um, I think you know there's a lot of left informed right in essence going on and and uh we have to see through the 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 facades and the the information and, and get to the facts and the facts are the facts, but the narratives vary, and so we have to decide which narrative we believe, and I'll leave it right there. Thank you, thank you, brother Moses. next we'll go to. Sister Eleanor, you're trying to us tonight. Well, uh, Brother Africa, I just wanted to wrap up with the uh, comment about the Innocence Project that uh, had uh, mentioned that 52, and that's I misspoke, that 52% of the wrongful convictions among those that the organization had helped free those people from prison, prison were from that very same forensic uh, 
clinic or forensic uh, office uh, or lab that uh, provided the information that convicted Williams and that what uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has done by allowing an independent lab in Utah to do will bring forward the truth and uh, we will see how people in power really misappropriated their use of power just not to find justice, not to find the murderers of these children, but simply to bring a resolution for political reasons to move forward. And uh, I, I believe that we will see and find out potentially who the murderers are if they're alive. And in addition, Brother Africa, Mitch McConnell and his speaking and not uh, relating to African-Americans as an American is a common phenomena in this country. And we must, we must stand up, as Brother Moses said, for our rights. And we have to take them and as they come. And we must remember what people like uh, Faisal said last year in 2021. When he came down from space, he said he wanted to thank the Amazon workers and the Amazon customers for paying for his trip because he didn't earn the money that took him to space. The workers did, but the workers are not receiving their fair share of, of decent salaries and decent wages. Instead, it's going into Bezos' pocket. And that year while he was in going to space, 13 Amazon workers died. Six in Illinois during tornadoes when everyone was told to go home, but Bezos insisted that they continue to work in these in these sweatshops that he has throughout the country. So the goal for us as people, as workers, is to raise our consciousness for everyone that receives a paycheck to realize that they are workers and know that there's something wrong with an economy where you can go to work and work very hard, but it's understood that you're going to need food stamps, Medicaid, and a voucher to pay for housing in very basic. There's so much inequity and economic injustice that we must raise the consciousness of ourselves as our duty. And through programs like this, it's being done. And uh, we cannot ignore these small things and these small things and freedoms that we have, such as uh, voting. 30 seconds is Eleanor. 30 seconds, please make it to a closing, okay? Okay. 39 states have passed these voter suppression laws. And we can't leave it up to the states to determine whether or not African people have a right to vote in this United States. It's up to Congress to do that. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's show. 
a good evening to everyone. Good night. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Hackey, you found the thoughts for tonight. Yeah, Brother Africa, I have to backtrack a bit because one of the things when we talk about McConnell, we got to understand, you know, McConnell is a politician. And so everything he does is calculated. And we should should not be deceived, you know, that when he says that he didn't mean what he said, he meant what he said. Now, here's the, here's the thing in terms of McConnell's rationale. Uh, now, when we, when we talk about the right-wing movements in this country, uh, McConnell was very uh, successful in terms of this dog whistle he employed. So by talking about the fact that, um, that black is not American, he knew that it would resonate with with, uh, with the right wing uh, right wing right wingers in the society. I recently read an article when she talked about uh, why the why is the propensity of so many whites to accept right wing right wing disinformation. Well, the article concluded the reason why they accept right wing disinformation is because they want to form it as much discontent society as possible because they want to do is to form in civil war in society. So clearly, Mitch McConnell understands that reality. Also, Brother Africa, when we, when we talk about his rationale, we've got to look at the implications in terms of midterm election. See, whereas Democrats, you know, are, are lackadaisical in terms of their approach to politics, Republicans are driven. I mean, they understand the role race plays in terms of motivating their, their crowd, their crowds. And so when they, their whole point is to get in, with these midterms to, to make sure that the House and the Senate is predominantly Republican, which means that it becomes much more easier to pass to, to implement changes in law and policy than further move this country to the right. And also, lastly, Brother Africa, I would say that when we talk about his rationales, you know, when, when things we got to understand, and this is very, very, this is very, very clear that we have to understand this point, is that when we talk about the decline of capitalism, we have to understand just how precarious our situation is in society. Many of us are under the illusion based upon news that everything is okay, that there's no problem, that everything's going to be okay. But the reality is that capitalism is in decline. And uh, so when we talk about, for example, the end of money printing, let's be clear. When you talk about society, which essentially is corporations are, are bankrupt, it means that economic, economic impact comes to a standstill. Superimposed upon that situation, these same corporations don't have access to money. What do you think that means for the economy? It means the economy got no other recourse but to collapse. That's the only, uh, uh, that's the only alternative it has. So people on the right understand that fundamental reality. In fact, a recent poll which indicated 46, 46% of the people on the right understand that uh, capitalism is in decline, which account for why you have this January 6th uh, uh, insurrection, because the right wingers understand you know, that there has to be a new paradigm, trying to create a new paradigm in the sense they're talking about a new political system, they want the old system back, but this time where only whites benefit. So clearly our situation in society is very perilous, and I, and I employ African people, you know, to unravel the matrix. You know, we've got to create those organizations, new institutions. We have to think deeper in terms of what's going on in society because the bottom line is that, you know, our time is limited. Uh, and who knows, in two years, we don't even have the opportunity to have these kind of discussions or these programs don't exist. We must begin in hard work now in terms of being to create those institutions uh, that we so better need in our community. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa, and you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hockey. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts. My final thought for tonight is uh, I want to thank you for having me on the program tonight and thank uh, the fellow uh, panelists for their presentation tonight. Uh, let's see, uh, we, as painful as it may be, uh, 
we have to understand our history in this country. Otherwise, what's happening to us at the present time will not make much sense. And uh, we have to study our history and never forget all the torture we've been subject to since we've been in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, we have to organize, uh, you know, as, as difficult that may be, because that is the only way we will be able uh, to, to fight for our freedom is if we are organized as a people. Uh, one way of uh, doing that is by joining the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, which uh, you can learn more about by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, you can, uh, in addition to purchasing Bob Brown's book, you can learn more about the history and development of our political party. Thank you for having me tonight. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank all of our political panelists and analysts. And, of course, thank you to Mr. Audience for, for allowing us to come to your homes this evening where we speak truth through power. And the power is until next time. Remember, without information, cannot thank. Without organization, cannot thank clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that is fighting for the liberation and unification of your people and your air home of Africa and a better humanity. Until next time, like someone once said, to do nothing is to be nothing. If your people is oppressed, you cannot sit on the sideline. So we see you next week as we continue to discuss part two of this series, uh, Not Americans. So we leave you on this note from Sister for my dear sister, Angela Stone, where she wants to share her love, her love, for all of our brothers throughout the world. we see you next week. He is my king, is my one, yes, he's my father, yes. He's my son, I can talk to him, cause he understands everything I go through and everything I am. He's my support system, I can't live without him. The best thing since life's bread is his kiss, his hug, his lips, his touch. And I just want the whole world to know about my black brother. I love you and I'll never try.
education. Now check it, you got your Wall Street brother, your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever, chilling on the corner brother. You're talented brother, and to every one of y'all behind bars, you know that Angie loves you. my black brother. Whenever you're facing doubt, 